Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Making my cat happy is my number one priority, and Fresh Step Out Stretch Litter helps me do just that. Meet Mr. Mittens. Mitty, for short. Ah! Mitty is happiest when his litter box is clean and fresh, and Fresh Step Out Stretch is amazing at absorbing waste and odor. We sure have found our common ground, haven't we? Happy cat, happy life. Find Fresh Step Outstretch at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. When one thinks of grand British royal pageantry, there is nothing quite like the excitement of a coronation. And it's rare we even get to see one. A new monarch, a new future, and new possibility. When Queen Elizabeth II was crowned on June 2nd, 1953, over 20 million people in Britain alone were able to attend the ceremony by watching it on that relatively new invention, the television. Those lucky enough to be inside Westminster Abbey, the site of every coronation since 1066, craned their necks not only to watch the moment that the Archbishop of Canterbury placed St. Edward's crown on the sovereign's head, but to get a better look at the brilliant and ancient jewels in the crown, as well as in the orb and scepter she was given that couldn't help but catch the eye. As she rode through the streets of London back to Buckingham Palace, it was a chance to see not only her from close range, but the magnificent jewels that she wore. The British crown jewels are legendary, and indeed, there are legends, stories, and fascinating bits of history surrounding them. But just what exactly are the crown jewels? When can they actually be worn? And just what will we see very soon as Britain crowns a new monarch, King Charles III? My guest today shares the histories and the mysteries of perhaps the most famous jewel collection in the world. If you need a field guide to the British crown jewels, as well as a look at the private jewel collection of members of the royal family, this episode will bring you into the very heart of the story. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we delve into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Of all the historic sites that I so love in London, I think the Tower of London is really my favorite. Sitting majestically along the River Thames, dominated by its infamous White Tower, which was built in 1078, the Tower has been a royal residence as well as a prison in its long history. Some of the prisoners kept within its walls have included Queen Elizabeth I, Sir Walter Raleigh, as well as the famous 15th century princes in the Tower, whose possibly tragic fate has never been explained. 
It's a place of great tradition from the beef eaters' uniforms of brilliant scarlet and gold dating back nearly 500 years to the presence of the inky black ravens whose departure is said will bring about the downfall of the British kingdom to the ceremonial locking of the tower each night, a ceremony that has taken place the same way since the 14th century. The tower once served as a starting point for coronation processions for over three centuries beginning in the 1300s. But there is another function to the many roles that the tower has played even today, and that is to house the famous British crown jewels. The crown jewels in their various configurations now comprise over 23,000 stones, and they've been housed in the Tower of London since the reign of Charles II. Modern visitors can see the collection of crowns and other accompanying royal regalia in a recently redesigned jewel house, which today includes moving walkways and a curated display of the treasures. My guest on The Gilded Gentleman today is Kurt DiCamillo, a friend and a colleague who knows not only the story of the crown jewels so well, but the fascinating stories of so much of Britain's cultural heritage. I've seen the crown jewels several times, and I so wish I had had Kurt with me at my side on my visits to explain exactly what one sees. Kurt DiCamillo is the curator of special collections at the New England Historic Genealogical Society. His career has included positions with Boston's Museum of Fine Arts and the National Trust for Scotland. He is a noted historian and a recognized authority on the British country house, about which he has written, lectured, and taught in the U.S. and abroad. Kurt is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, the Massachusetts Historical Society, and is a member of the Council of the American Museum in Britain. In recognition for his work, he has been presented to the late Queen Mother and the Prince of Wales, the present King. Kurt, I am so honored to have you join me today on The Gilded Gentleman. Welcome to the show. The honor is all mine. Oh, I think I'm the honor is mine. I'm so happy that you're here, particularly to talk about something that's as exciting as the crown jewel. So before we get to the actual jewels here, the centerpiece of the collections, it seems, could could be the crowns. And I know we'll go into detail of those. So my first question, something I've really been curious about is how did crowns really come into being in Britain? What do we know about the first monarch that would have worn one? Well, the easy answer to that question is that we don't know. There's all kinds of speculation about when crowns were worn. We only have one image of a very early king. This would be the um, grandson of the famous Alfred the Great. First representation, I think the year 934, of a king of England wearing a crown. But in 1988, it was discovered in Kent a crown going back to the time before Christ. And this was probably, this would have been from the Iron Age and it probably would have been worn around 200 BC. And we don't know what it was. This is a skull that was discovered and the crown was on the skull. The problem is what does a crown represent? Does it represent a king? Does it represent a warrior? Does it represent a leader of a, of a battle group? We simply don't know, but we do know that that kind of thing has been worn. And we know that even though the Roman emperors didn't wear crowns, that the Byzantine emperors, which claimed to be the successors to Rome, did wear crowns. So the speculation is that crowns in Britain were a combination of two things, the residue of the Byzantine Empire, when the emperor would have worn a crown, and the Germanic tribes, the Celts that invaded from what's today primarily Austria, 
and took over Britain, and they were warriors, and they wore helmets to protect themselves. And the idea is probably that there's a combination of those two things that came together to present an idea of this is a ruler. And that's probably what a crown was more than anything else. It's something to identify to his troops, to, to walking down the street, this is somebody who's important, someone who stands out in a crowd. Can you talk about, I'm so curious, can you talk about what these early crowns looked like, either in the uh, depictions that we have or, or the actual one that was discovered a number of years ago? What did they look like? Those two, interestingly enough, are pretty much the same. There was just a circlet and then basically points coming up from the, from around it. We don't think there's any other decoration beyond that. And we know for a fact that in the medieval age, when the English kings still fought and led their armies in battle, that a king of England would wear a crown on top of his helmet for the same reason that I mentioned a few minutes ago, to show that he's the leader and mainly to, to lead his troops and say, I'm here because you couldn't see his face because it was covered by armor. So he's always, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still leading you. And it, it was meant to be a recognition. The same reason that we have coats of arms, coats of arms that we think of today were just a way for knights who couldn't see anything but metal to identify if they were on the right side or not. They're called a coat of arms because you wore this stuff over your arms. And it was because you would kill your own people if you didn't know who was who. So there's really a very practical reason for some of this, it sounds like. Like most things, there's a practical reason that starts out from it. So let's ask the big question here, because I think it's something that, that will be interesting to so many people. Just what exactly are the British crown jewels? What does that refer to? Well, that's a moving target or a question, because technically it refers to only the things that the monarch would have held like a scepter or worn. But over the centuries, it's come to include all kinds of other things, most particularly the banqueting plate. So banqueting plate is silver that's coated with gold, and it would be used at the coronation banquet that would be held directly after the coronation. And this is come to be accepted as part of the crown jewels because it was always part of the ceremony. And over the years, other things have come into it as well. The coronation ring, which symbolizes your marriage to England. These things have been added over the years, and that's why there's no hard and fast rule of what is crown jewels. It's basically whatever the queen or the king decides is a crown jewel. Well, I, I just recently heard Kurt deliver a brilliant lecture on the crown jewels, which was so exciting because that led to us doing this episode. But one of the things that you said, which I thought was truly fascinating, was of all the crowned houses of Europe, the British crown jewels are actually the only ones that are actually still used. Am I correct about that? That is correct. It's why Britain is still sort of the star when it comes to monarchies. Um, the Scandinavian countries, all of whom have a monarch, stopped, I think, in the early 20th century having coronations because they were considered to be too, not really in line with the people, too grand, a sign of decadence showing off all this gold and stuff. They still have their crown jewels in these countries. They just don't, they're never crowned anymore. When someone dies and the next person becomes the king or queen, <laughs> there's no ceremony. It just happens. And so these are the only crown jewels in Europe that are used as they were intended to be used. You can go, for instance, to Denmark and you can see the crown jewels but they're not used anymore. So let's go back into the collection, because I think there's so much to talk about here. So the collection that we see when we go to the Jewel House at the Tower, how did that collection, the collection of uh, crown jewels that we see today, how did that begin? Well, technically, if you believe the rumors, which are probably just rumors, it began with the penultimate Anglo-Saxon king of England, Edward the Confessor. 
he supposedly, when he died, left in trust to the monks at Westminster Abbey his jewels. We now think that was probably just a myth that was created by the monks themselves to get more visitors in the 13th century. So Edward died in the 11th century, in 1066. So we can only really begin to say in the 13th century, we had the idea of crown jewels. And in those days, the crown jewels were literally the property of the king. There hadn't been any queens at this point, any reigning queens at least. And so what happened was you had your own crown made when you became king and it was yours. And oftentimes they gave them away to other princes in other countries. They gave them to friends or they would literally be buried with them as was very much the custom in, in Celtic burials. It really wasn't until I would say the reign of Henry III that you actually had the idea just beginning to form that these were something that were important that should be passed down from generation to generation that each king should not have his own bits and pieces. And we know actually, for, for instance, Edward II had at least 10 different crowns, none of which survived. None of these crowns, of course, survived because of Oliver Cromwell. But the idea developed over time that this was something that was sacred, something that should be repeated, and not just something you created every time for yourself. Matter of fact, when kings died, oftentimes, you know, the, the next king or queen would melt down the crowns and sell the stones. So the idea of something that was permanent, that was passed on, that was part of the national psyche, uh, happened very slowly over time. So what happened in the 17th century with Cromwell and the English <laughs> Civil War? What happened to the existing crown jewels at that time? So as I'm sure everybody knows, Oliver Cromwell um, created the English Republic. He abolished the monarchy. He decided that England was going to be a republic. It was called the Commonwealth of England. And he orchestrated the beheading of Charles I, the king. After that happened, like almost in any revolution, it was like, what do we do with the spoils? We have all this cool stuff. So what, what they did was to sell everything. So all the, all the state jewels, the crown jewels, crown jewels being different than state jewels, were melted down and turned into coins. This was done very purposely to show the fact that what used to be a monarch symbol was now a coin that said the Republic of England on it or the Commonwealth of England. The jewels were sold and the money was put into the state. And so we only know of a few pieces that escaped that because there were actually auctions as well in Somerset House in the 17th century of former crown jewels. And we know that some royalists bought at those auctions bits and pieces and saved them in the hopes that one day they would be king again and that they could give these things back to that king. And that is, in fact, what happened. And so those jewels are in the collection today? Jewels is an interesting word. There's really only one thing we know for sure that was in the original crown jewels, and that's the um, this coronation spoon that's from the 12th century. And that's where the holy oil would have been poured out before the monarch was anointed. So there really aren't any, it's, it's gold, it's plated gold over silver. Jewels, as I say, is a moving target. We were pretty sure that the Stuart Sapphire, which was is a very large sapphire, I think about 120 carats, that was owned by the medieval kings of Scotland, was saved and returned to Charles II when he came to the throne in 1660 after the restoration. We don't know, but we know this is an ancient gem. And the same thing with the Black Prince's Ruby, probably the most famous piece of jewel that's in the crown jewels. That probably came from Afghanistan in the 13th century and was given to the Black Prince, who was the son of Edward III. 
who was called black for a number of reasons. We think his armor may have been black. He was also so vicious in battle that he was considered to have a black heart by his opponents. But regardless, he's called the Black Prince, and this was the ruby that he got for services rendered to a ruler of Spain. And we think it was bought by somebody who was loyal to the crown after the dissolution of the monarchy. And we know those two stones, the Stuart Sapphire and the Black Prince's Ruby, were returned to Charles II, and they were incorporated into a new crown. I think it's going to be fascinating to to many listeners, it certainly was to me, that the Crown Jewels is actually a dynamic collection of jewels. And you've talked a little bit about the oldest piece, the spoon, right, in the collection. So what's the newest piece that has landed in the collection of the Crown Jewels? Technically, the newest piece are the armels that were made for Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953. So armels are basically bracelets that are gold and they're lined with padded velvet on the inside. But those aren't as glamorous as I think we really want to talk about. So let's say 1937. So in 1937, at the coronation of George VI, we had two crowns made. One for the queen consort, later the, the queen mother. Her crown, which was set one of the largest stones in the world at the time, the Kohinoor diamond. And her husband was crowned with the traditional crown, St. Edward's crown, but that's only put in their head very briefly. And because it's so heavy, it's almost immediately taken off. And they have the imperial state crown, which is the crown that's probably most famous. And that crown was made in 1937 for George VI. And so I would say the newest things that are really blingy are those two crowns, the crown, the imperial state crown of George VI and the crown made for Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Let's talk about those two crowns, the one that is actually placed on the sovereign's head at the moment of, I guess, official coronation, right, is St. Edward's crown. What's the story of that crown? That was made in 1661 for Charles II. Charles II had been told by the monks of Westminster Abbey, who knew his father and knew the crown jewels that had been melted down, that the original St. Edward's crown, named after Edward the Confessor, was very simple mainly gold with maybe two or three gems on it. And that was the traditional, very medieval, which to say not very fancy crown. And Charles II, who loved bling, said, oh no, I'm not having one of those. I want something really big. And what he looked, everyone looked at that time was to France. And France had the biggest blingiest crowns and very much, I think, influenced by continental designs. He had this crown made that is huge and very heavy, solid gold. But as was the case at the time, he didn't have the money to have the crown and the stones. So they hired the stones for the day. And then the stones are taken back to the jewelers who they hired them from. And so for years, this crown, which is only used to crown sovereigns, not used for any other purpose, was sort of the most famous crown. And because Charles II made the monarchy refreshing, his father's work, I think you can say that most everything we have today starts with Charles II. And it's interesting, it's during his reign that we have the very first examples of the crown jewels being made available to the public for a fee. And what's even more interesting to me is that they had no stones in them, so it wasn't fun. So we're pretty sure that the keeper of the crown jewels, who got, a, who got the money from the people who wanted to see them, started the tradition of putting in paste or artificial stones, because it's no fun to see a crown without it's jewels in it. And so that's the beginning of, and not telling the people that these are artificial, because this was kept pretty much a secret that the stones were hired. Um, and they were rented for the day. When did that practice stop of the rent a diamond for a day kind of 
pr- procedure. When, when did the, the stones start staying in the grounds? Rent a diamond for a day. Well, that's a complicated answer because of diamonds. So St. Edward's Crown was pretty much, when it was rented, almost all colored stones. But with the Hanoverians, which is the Georges who became, in 1714, the first George became King of England, there was this obsession in Europe with diamonds. And what they did was take out the colored stones that they did have, which they did have in the imperial state crown, which is your everyday crown. Those all had colored stones and they were just diamonds for the day because diamonds had much more glitter. And as I say, Europe was obsessed with diamonds. So it wasn't really until Queen Victoria's time, she was crowned in 1838, that we have, this is silly, because Victoria and Albert, who were very good with budgets and money, sat down and, as they said in the UK, did the sums and realized that you could, the fees were huge to rent these stones, that the calls went out to all over Europe to rent stones for the English coronations. And they said, you know what? We pay so much for this. Just in two coronation fees, we could actually buy the jewels rather than rent them out. And so that was really with Victoria. So only in the 19th century do you have the stones becoming permanent. So let's talk about the everyday crown, such as it is the imperial state crown. So once the monarch is actually crowned, that crown is taken off, correct? And then they are given the imperial state crown. When was that constructed and and how is that worn and when is that worn? Once again, everything goes back to Charles II. There were probably all kinds of crowns in the medieval times that we don't know about, but it was Charles who really instigated what we have today, which is a system of how you wear your crowns and which crowns you have, which is mainly just two crowns, crown to be coronated in, St. Edward's crown, and then an everyday crown, which was, we know from his time period, called the state crown. That crown, we're not sure what it looked like, but we know by 1714, 1715, it was falling apart. So when George I came in, as the first German king of England, he needed a new one. And we have the drawings that were made of that in 1714, 1716. And that's the first example we have of a real state crown that was light enough to wear every day. That started falling apart during Victoria's reign. And she had a new imperial state crown built, and then hers started falling apart in the 1930s. So George VI had a fourth one made. So the current one is the fourth imperial state crown. And it's worn when the queen or the king rides to parliament for official functions. When the queen goes to parliament to open parliament, the crown is carried in its own carriage. And the queen doesn't wear it until she gets into the houses of parliament. She wears the crown out of the House of Parliament after the state opening, and she waves to the crowds wearing it. She wore that anytime she wanted to really impress. But even that, which is much lighter than St. Edward's crown, is heavy. And the queen has said, and everyone who's worn a headpiece, even tiaras say this, that it hurts. It hurts to wear a crown because there's a lot of weight pressing down. And the queen, of course, is very small. So she had a lot more weight coming down than at like a six-foot man when she was five foot four. So... They're just not comfortable, no matter what you do with them. They're heavier than you think, and you only wear them for short periods of time. And then sometimes, in the 18th century particularly, the crowns weren't worn at all. They were carried in state in front of the monarch on a pillow. Now, I want to ask you a little bit more about the collection of crowns. What about the consort crowns? What did these refer to, and when are those worn? Queen consorts, They're. Um, it's interesting. I, I'm hesitating because in Britain, which is unusual because most European countries, queens could not be anything other than a queen consort, which is the wife of a king, where in Britain, 
the woman could inherit and run the whole show. So in Britain, the wife of a reigning queen, I'm sorry, the husband of a reigning queen is usually a prince and they don't get crowns. So the consort crowns are always for women in British history, and they were just that. A queen consort is a person who has no power of her own. She's married to the king who has all the power. But you want to do advertising. That's ultimately, in the 18th to the 20th centuries, what this is really all about. Because there's no reason for a queen to have a crown. She wasn't fighting in battle for the identification purposes we talked about earlier. She was just somebody you wanted to have extra bling associated with you. And those crowns would only be worn once at her coronation because a queen would be anointed as was a king at the coronation. He would be done first. She would be given a crown. She'd be anointed. She'd be given a scepter and sometimes even an orb. And the earliest queen consort's crown that we know that exists in the crown jewels is the one of Mary of Modena, who was the um, wife of James II. And this is very typical. Her crown and then the next queen consort's crown, which was made for Queen Alexandra in the early 20th century, are set with rock crystals. They were set with stones at one point, meaning real diamonds. But this is very, very common. Someone else comes along, I'm going to be the new queen consort, I want my own crown. And that happened with Queen Mary. That's one of the other succeeding crowns that still exists. We're not going to pay for new stones. We'll build you a new frame. So we're going to take the stones from existing things, not just existing crowns. Sometimes they take them from brooches. Sometimes they take them from necklaces. But when that's why Mary of Modena and Queen Alexandra's crowns are with paste or rock crystal because they needed them from something else and no one wanted to wear them anymore. And this keeps happening over and over again. It still happens. You go to Cartier and you say, look, I've got all these pieces of, of stuff I got from my mother and I want to make something really big and a crown out of this. And they say, okay, we can do that for you. We'll give you some drawings and um, we'll try to incorporate these stones you have here. And then the things that were important to your mother are just empty now. So I'm, of course, incredibly curious. Can you talk about Two questions here, really. Can you talk about what pieces from the crown jewels we can expect to see at the upcoming coronation? And what crowns will we see? What will Charles wear? And I guess more interestingly, what will Camilla wear? Well, the answer to, to all three of those questions is we don't know. Um, I think we can say with a certain degree of certitude that um, Charles will respect tradition and he will be crowned with St. Edward's crown. And then he'll wear the imperial state crown after that. But the reason I say we don't know, and we really don't know, but the, the real kicker here is that Charles had said for years that when he became king, he was going to de-emphasize the formality of the monarchy. And there are rumors that he is um, not going to have peers wear the coronet. So if you're a peer, which is you have an inherited title, you have the right to wear a coronation robe and a coronet once in your lifetime, or if you're lucky enough to have two or three coronations, anytime there's a coronation, you come in these red, basically cloaks, and you have an abbreviated form of a crown that you can wear only after the king or queen has been crowned. As it's being put on his or her head, you're allowed to take it off of your lap and put it on your head. And this is something that Charles supposedly said is not going to happen anymore. And I say this because when I was over in England last month, one of the peers of the realm said, looking at his coronet and his robe said, 
I won't be able to wear these. Charles says we're not going to wear them anymore. I have not been able to find any confirmation of that. So who knows? But the whole point is that he's always said he's going to make things less formal and easier. So that could mean less bling. The other thing is we also have the question of Camilla as not just any queen consort because of the checkered background of her coming into his life as his wife. There may be a reason not to anoint her or crown her because it might be too much for the British public to take. So it might be something that's quietly done off the side or not done at all. And my guess would be, unlike her predecessors, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and Queen Mary, she will not insist on having a new crown made for her. So it's anybody's guess what will happen with Camilla. Um, I think Charles is very sensitive to her perception. So there might be a modified version of a coronation for her. It might be full blown. We, we really won't know. These things are kept secret by design by the royal family. So you're just going to have to come back a couple of weeks <laughs> after the coronation and we'll do a, you know, a follow up to, to discuss all of this. So of all of the crowns in the collection, and I realize they've all been made at various times in history, of course, are there specific elements in the design that they actually do have in common? Well, I mentioned coronets as something that a peer wears, and they look like a crown, but they don't have arches. So that's something that I would say is very much a European tradition. It's something that Charles took advantage of. When I mentioned earlier, Charles II, when he came to the throne and the the, uh, monks of Westminster Abbey said, this is the kind of crown that Edward the Confessor wore, which is simply... Um, the kind of crown that you would get when I was a kid for your birthday, which was a piece of paper that was gilded and had little spikes going around it. That's pretty much what we think St. Edward's crown looked like. Arches in- indicate an empire, and usually there are two sets of arches crossing over. And that's something that developed in the continent. And we think that's what Charles II wanted when he created the new St. Edward's crown. And that's what it is. You have two crosses, and then you have a velvet cap in the middle. Now, peers can wear a velvet cap of red velvet, but a crown is purple. And of course, we all know the reason for that. The Roman emperors, purple is such a royal color that when it was more or less discovered synthetically, it was only allowed to be worn by the royal family, the imperial family of Rome. Anyone else who wore purple would be executed. So purple has come down to us through the centuries, something we can say directly from Rome and then to Byzantium and then to the continent as being a color that can only be worn by royalty, which is why you only see purple velvet inside a crown. The other thing I would say that's um, a common theme among certainly all the British crown jewels, but also in the continent as well, is the fleur-de-lis. And this is something that is a pretty thing. It's a form of a lily. But for, I would say, starting, well, actually, basically with William the Conqueror in 1066, um, going forward for hundreds of years, the English kings claimed to be the kings of France. So they very consciously chose the fleur-de-lis as one of the symbols of France to put into their crown saying, we own that. It wasn't until the coronation of George IV in 1821 that the coronation oath had its wording changed, not saying to say, I am the king of France as well. Because by the time of George IV, Um, Napoleon had come around, the French Revolution, there was no kingdom of France anymore. So there's nothing for the British to claim. But I would say those are the two things, fleur-de-lis and um, arches on your headpiece are something that are standard throughout all crowns. And with that, Kurt and I are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to talk more about the jewels of the British crown. 
Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with Curti Camillo today, and we are preparing for the coronation by taking a look at the British crown jewels. Now, I'm curious to talk about some of the other pieces in the uh, collection of crown jewels that are not crowns before we get into actual jewels. Uh, things like the orb, the scepter. You, you mentioned the the spoon a few minutes ago. Can you talk about some of these when they came into the collection and what they uh, refer to, what they mean? Well, once again, with the exception of the spoon, everything that we're going to talk about was made for Charles II in the, um, the 1660s. And there is an awful lot of stuff. If you want to really use the broadest term for the crown jewels, we're talking about crowns and scepters. And a scepter, of course, is a sign, something that was carried forward from the Roman Empire, a sign of ruling you would hold in your hand. An orb is something that's supposed to symbolize Christ's sovereignty over the world because it's a gold ball that's held in the sovereign's hand and it's topped by a cross, the cross of Jesus. And it symbolizes the idea that the reigning prince or king or queen was Jesus's or God's servant on earth. And therefore this symbolized their ability to rule over the subjects, not just in a functional sense, but in a temporal sense of being their religious leaders. Then you have the maces, you have spurs, you have trumpets, you have coronation spoons, you have the ampulla, you have rings, you have bracelets, you have the banqueting plate. All of these things are collectively called the crown jewels today. And in medieval times, which most of these things started, they had a functional purpose. When a sword was affixed to the waist of the king or queen, it was to symbolize the fact that he or she was the protector of his people. When they were actually given the orb, it was the same thing, like you're the protector of the religion of these people. And the spurs, they were their golden spurs, they were attached during the ceremony to their feet. They literally were becoming knights, so they earned their spurs, once again protecting their people. They were given a variety of different swords. One sword, which is the idea that you protected your people from any kind of invasion from another country, 
and then you had a sword that was relegated to the idea of God, and you were protecting your people um, in God's name. So, for instance, there are, it's astonishing. There's the sword of offering, the sword of temporal justice, the sword of mercy, the sword of state, and the sword of spiritual justice. These are all separate swords that had separate meanings that were used in the coronation ceremony. Are any of them used today? Um, I don't know. I mean, once again, I don't know what Charles is going to do. I'm going to say probably not. Most likely there'll be one sword that will be used and it will probably be carried in to the coronation ceremony by a peer um, before Charles arrives. These swords, some of them are astonishing. The one that was made for George IV has a gold case. It's encrusted with gems. It's fantastic. George was probably the blingiest of all kings. And it's astonishing. It's one of the most biggest stars, actually, in the Tower of London because it's not something people expect. And I would suspect that that sword, because it is so blingy, they'll probably choose just one sword to try to simplify the service. Now, I want to get back to the the actual jewels. You've talked about a couple of them. You talked about the the story of the Black Prince's ruby, also the Stuart Sapphire. But but there are more. There's St. Edward's Sapphire, if I'm correct, and also the Koh-i-Noor. Can you talk about all of these stones? Well, let's start with the Koh-i-Noor. So the Koh-i-Noor was basically stolen um, by the British when they ruled India. But of course, it had been stolen by, by previous reigns of different monarchs over the years. It's a big subject of controversy now with the coming coronation of Charles III. There have been um, requests from India that the British government return the stone to, to the Indian government. The problem, of course, is that like most of these famous stones, the Indians had them and they sold them from somebody else who sold them from somebody else who sold them from somebody else. So the problem for the British government in repatriating, if they were so inclined, things like this is who gets it? because everyone took it from somebody else. Kohenor, when it was um, discovered, was the largest diamond in the world, and that was probably in the 18th century. And it's important to say that for about 5,000 years to the, the discovery of diamonds, they were only known to exist in India. It wasn't until 1725 when diamonds were discovered in Brazil that there was another place you could get diamonds from. So India was the source of the most incredible diamonds in the world. And therefore, it's not surprising we would find the Kohinoor, which means something like the brightness of light in ancient Indian languages. And it was taken and back given to Queen Victoria when she was uh, made the Empress of India in 1877. And she didn't like it. It was 186 carats cut. And this is something that's, that's talked about a lot in gemological circles. She didn't like it because it was big, but it didn't sparkle. And it was put on view at the Great Exhibition in London in 1851, and it underawed the people because it was like a big blob. So she had it recut, and it lost 80 carats. It's about, I think, 106 carats today, but it made it sparkle. And she had it mounted into a brooch. And this is a perfect example. If you follow the Koh-i-Noor, it's had all kinds of uses within the British crown jewels, ending up in the crowns of the consorts because they're like, I want that in my crown. And so Kohenor, I think, is a very interesting case study, and I wouldn't be surprised if eventually it does leave um, the British crown jewels because of its checkered history. The other ones you mentioned have no problem with ownership or with their provenance. And I'll start first with what is believed to be the oldest gem in the crown jewels, which is St. Edward's Sapphire. We think that it was probably made in the 11th or 10th century that it was originally discovered and cut. And it was recut during the restoration of the monarchy in the 1660s because it's too sparkly. The, the technology did not exist 
in the medieval times to cut a stone. So it's, it's shown the way think we do it today. Didn't have the facets in it. So we think once again that somebody probably bought it at the auction of the crown jewels after the execution of Charles I and saved it and gave it back to Charles II when he was put on the throne and he had it recut. And what, what's really cool to me about this is that we know from the historical record that this was a stone that was in the ring worn by Edward the Confessor. And it was taken probably by the monks of Westminster Abbey 150, 200 years after he died when they opened his tomb and took the stuff out that he was buried with. And the most famous piece of medieval English painted art is this amazing thing called the Wilton Diptych that's in the National Gallery in London. And it shows the king at the time, Richard II. It's very famous. I'm sure when you see it, you'll recognize, oh, that. Richard II's been talking to the angels in heaven, and he has next to him three saints that he says were his patron saints. And one of them is Edward the Confessor. And in this image, which is made, I think, in 1399, he's wearing very distinctively this sapphire ring. And it was Queen Victoria who decided instead of just having it in a ring, which is, we think, how Charles II wore it, or in a necklace, that she was going to mount it in her new imperial state crown. And so that's where it is today. It's actually in the cross, it's in the middle of the cross that's on top of the crown, and it's been there ever since. I think the coolest thing about it is simply that it's so old. I mean, it could even be older than the 10th century, because we know that these places, once again, Afghanistan most likely is where it was mined. They've been doing gems there since the first century. So we've said a couple of times that the crown jewels have resided at the Tower of London since the time of, of Charles II. I'm so curious, has anyone ever tried to steal them? Have they ever been stolen? Yes. Well, once they've been stolen and once they were attempted to be stolen. And the time they were stolen was in 1303 when they were still kept at Westminster Abbey. And they actually were stolen. The only thing that wasn't stolen were the crown jewels. And it's important to stop here and to reiterate again the difference between crown jewels, which are only used for coronations, and state jewelry, which is worn for everyday use. They were kept in different rooms at Westminster Abbey. And the thieves only broke into the room that had the state jewels, which was probably smart because there are many more state jewels much more gold than there would have been in the one that had the crown jewels, which is really just probably a crown and maybe a scepter and an orb. So those were stolen. They were almost none of them recovered. And it was because of that theft that in the 14th century, the decision was taken to take the jewels away from Westminster Abbey and take them to the Tower of London, which was considered to be much safer. And they were moved into the basement of the White Tower, which is the most prolific, the most famous of all the buildings in the Tower of London. And I love this. They were put in a room that had walls that were 16 feet thick, and it took 49 keys to get into the room where they were kept. And the, the real famous attempt, and I say this is the attempt as opposed to the one we just talked about, which was actually successful, was in 1671 when Colonel Thomas Blood broke in, stole the crown. Um, his accomplice tried to saw the scepter in half, put the crown on his head and ran, and he was caught. And it was after that that they were moved into their specially built room, which has happened probably five or six times since then, getting increasingly stronger, which is called the Jewel Tower. And I think now you can say the security is so tight, you would never even consider that because they're also under the ground. Now, I want to make a quick stop with uh, Queen Victoria. You've mentioned her several times, but I want to talk a little bit about her. What jewels of hers can we still see in the collection today? 
Well, there's only one thing I can say for absolute certainty that's hers, and that's the little miniature crown that was made for her. It's important to remember that after the death of her husband, Prince Albert, in 1861, she was never the same again. She was in mourning for the rest of her life, which was over 40 years. And as a, as a widow who was in perpetual mourning, she would only wear two colors, white and black. All the crowns had colored stones in them, so she refused to wear them. And this was a problem for the court because they thought the queen needed to look like a queen. So they eventually came up with the idea of making a small little crown of entirely of diamonds and white metal that she could wear on a little pillow on her head the pillow was attached to her hair, and that became sort of her signature. And that's in the, the um, Tower of London and the Crown Jewels. And it's important to mention as well the difference between personal ownership and state ownership. So when Queen Victoria died, she had paid for the making of that crown out of her personal money, but she left it to the crown, if you'll forgive the overusage of the word crown, which meant it was now not saleable. It was inseparable from the crown. It would be used over and over again. And matter of fact, her daughter-in-law, the next queen, Queen Alexandra, wore that crown. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about, I want to move away from the crown jewels a little bit and talk about Queen Elizabeth II's own personal jewelry collection. Are there things that you think are particularly remarkable in the jewels that she owned? Well, this is an interesting subject because there's some things we know for a fact the queen owns, but there's some things that she may have left at her death to the crown. And these things are never made public. We won't know unless someone actually volunteers the information. Just like Victoria did, and just like her grandmother, Queen Mary, did, at her death, it's likely that Queen Elizabeth left things to the crown that were personally hers before that. But that being said, we can talk about some of the things that she was given during her lifetime. One of the most amazing things, I think, is this, what's considered to be the most perfect pink diamond in the world, which was given to her by a man who owned a diamond mine in Canada, and he gave it to her as a wedding gift in 1947, uncut. She had Cartier cut it, and she had it mounted in the middle of a jonquil flower, and it has about 200 small diamonds around it. It's this enormous brooch. It's probably about six inches long. The other thing that she did, which we haven't talked about at all, are family orders. So family orders are something that's really obscure and interesting. It's the gift of the monarch, he or she can only give these orders to female members of the royal family. And it's a great honor to be given one. Every monarch has a different look, so that it's usually a picture of themselves painted on ivory, now it's painted on glass, surrounded by diamonds, and above that would be in diamonds, St. Edward's crowned. And then it would be mounted on a piece of colored silk, and every reign was a different color of silk. So Elizabeth's reign, she used yellow silk. And because she was alive for her father and her grandfather, she had their orders that she wore all the time. So they would be a picture of her father and her grandfather and with their unique colors. And the only time you know when these orders have been given is when a member of the female royal family appears in public wearing one of them. And everyone's like, ooh, she got a family order. And I think they're wonderful. I love the fact she picked yellow. It's one of my favorite colors. And it was a sign of ultimate acceptance. It's interesting that after the divorce, um, Diana gave hers back. And the question is, <laughs> was she asked to return it or did she voluntarily turn it back? Because it's a sign of personal affection. And I think that's important to remember as well because we talk about all these things, these honors that are given over the years by the queen twice a year in honor of her birthday and on New Year's Day. 
And those are things that are basically she's told to do by the government. These things like a family order are things that are her personal choice that's entirely within her gift, as they would say in the UK, and it shows who she really likes. Are there any particular pieces that Kate and or Camilla wear today that you would like to talk about that you think we should be on the lookout for? There are so many tiaras, and there really are, and probably most of them are continuing to be owned by the royal family personally and not by the state, that it's hard to know. Um, The queen during her lifetime often loaned tiaras out to any number of members of the royal family, even junior members. They have such a wide variety to choose from. It's anybody's guess as to what they'll be wearing. They're all owned by Charles now, and obviously he's not going to be wearing one of them, although I would like to. And I think it's up, you know, he'll be giving them out. And I say giving them out because the queen never gave them to people. She loaned them, long-term loans. You can have this for 20 years. So it's likely that Charles will follow that. He'll take personal ownership in them and give them out to members of the family. And this will be speculated on before it happens. And then once it is revealed in the press, when women appear wearing these tiaras, it'll be talked about a lot as to who got what. And it'll be speculated upon as well. Was it an outright gift or is it a loan? Um, But I don't know what to expect. So, Kurt, my very last question here, although there are so many other aspects of all this we could continue talking about, but what are you going to be watching for during the coronation? Um, I hate to sound so so typical and trite, but I'm going to be looking for crowns because, as I said to you earlier, it's anyone's guess what Camilla wear. I, I'm looking specifically to see if Camilla is publicly crowned. I'm also going to look to see if the anointing is filmed because... The anointing is considered such a private part of the ceremony that it's never been allowed to be filmed before, not even photographed. And that happens before the crown is placed on their heads. So will that be opened up to the public? Those are the things I'm looking for more than anything else is will Charles be downsizing the coronation and making it more accessible? I think he's very much inclined to that. Kurt, you have certainly given us some new eyes uh, with which to watch the upcoming coronation or even when we visit the Jewel House at the Tower of London. Once again, gosh, I wish I had had you with me when I was there. Uh, I know listeners will want to follow you and all of your talks and lectures, as well as your tours, the wonderful tours that you do to the UK and Europe. So my listeners, you can sign up for Kurt's newsletter at thedcamillo.com and all that information will be on the Gilded Gentleman website as well. Kurt is a specialist in the English country house and has amassed a truly extraordinary database on British country houses and estates that you can browse for some really fascinating information. Thank you so much for joining me today. Will will you be in the crowd in London or will you be watching here at home? (laughs) You couldn't get me close to that crowd because I'm not a fan of crowds. I'll be getting up early to watch it on TV. I, I will too. So, Kurt, thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman. I have to say, this is one of the highlights of my year, and I'm really honored to be here. Well, mine too. And thank you so much for joining me on the show. We will find something else to bring you back. We can talk about British country houses and British history to the cows come home. I love it. Well, we look forward to that. And my listeners, make sure that you look forward to that too. And to my listeners, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. 
Your support helps me in a very direct way manage the costs of research, studio rentals, and production costs and allows me to create the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.